Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to the, uh, well, I don't want to say long-awaited, but uh, maybe long-in-the-works uh, 34th episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. I'm not even going to uh, hazard a guess at the uh, frequency of this program moving forward. Um, I've talked on other uh, programs here at the channel that uh, I was hit with a little bit of spontaneous mic fright, um, sort of out of nowhere, uh, around the holidays. Um, not so much having trouble, uh, you know, talking with a partner, you know, uh, when I'm doing uh, other programs here where I have uh, someone to banter with. It's a bit easier, but when it's just me and a microphone in my, you know, cluttered little room, it's, uh, I don't know, it gave me hives for a bit. So uh, trying to work past that <laughs> and deliver this episode today, which is a, a subject that, that's uh, one of the many subjects that I think I, you know, place a lot more uh, value, importance, and uh, interest in uh, than uh, most other people. Uh, I think that's kind of the story of my fandom. I find uh, the, some of the stranger things uh, interesting that uh, that fall a little bit off the mainstream and usually don't get a whole lot of play. But uh, for the moment, I am back to uh, deliver a story, and we're going to be discussing Leonard the Duck, uh, the great duck napping of uh, the late 1990s, uh, when Steve Gerber and... Uh, a friend attempted to uh, literally uh, steal Howard the Duck from Marvel Comics. We'll uh, we'll get into that in just a little bit, but first I wanted to go into a little bit of housekeeping here. Um, I try not to really cross the streams all that much, but uh, the website that this show is named after, over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, uh, there's been a little bit of a change there um, in the past uh, week or so. Uh, we're in the uh, month of May right now, if, uh, for, for all time travelers listening to this in the distant future. This is May 2020, and uh, I've started something called Marvel May. So every day this month, uh, at least for this month, uh, so far it is just a temporary measure, but uh, you never know how we'll feel in 30 days. Um, I'm covering Marvel books on my normally DC-specific and DC-centric uh, blog, and uh, there's some reasons for that. And uh, they include my recent uh, attempt at reading some current year DC stuff and uh, sharing those thoughts about what I read on the blog. Um, about a month ago, or maybe within a half a month ago, I covered the six-part Flash Forward series. Uh, now, if, that's, if you don't know what that is, um, and I, I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, it is uh, basically what happened to Wally West after the uh, Heroes in Crisis event, basically. Uh, where he went, what happened to him, how he got all worked out, and how he ultimately wound up becoming uh, the next uh, incarnation of Dr. Manhattan or something. I, uh, I hated it uh, quite a bit. Um, not so much for the series itself, but... Just the point that it had to exist in the first place because, uh, I mean, they destroyed the Wally West character with the uh, Heroes in Crisis event uh, from last year. And, uh, I mean, I could talk for hours, and I have talked for hours, about my distaste for that book and its writer. And uh, we're, we're not going to go into that today, though. Uh, but I do want to touch on this Flash Forward series here. It was written by Scott Lobdell with art by Brett Booth. And I blame neither of those men for uh, the absolute uh, garbage that the story was, because uh, 
they had a job to do, the way I look at it. And, and I am projecting. I have no inside knowledge. I, I just assume that they were told, they were tasked with, uh, you need to get Wally West from here to there. And uh, they did it as best they could. Um, I, I did not like it. And it's uh, six uh, blog posts on the site that I am not terribly proud of. Uh, I'm not proud of the way they went because... I mean, if you go back and read them, and I, and, I mean, I wouldn't recommend you do because they're not very good. Uh, they they are very uh, emotionally driven. So if you like to see a dude just start ranting, I mean, there you go. You, I mean, you can check that out. But I was just, uh, the, over the course of six days, um, you could actually watch as I lost complete faith and hope in a company and, in a way, an industry that I care so, so much about. Um, this story systematically disassembled my fandom, uh, one issue at a time, page at a time, and it just really made me think, and, and it's something I, I mentioned at the end of the last post, uh, when I reviewed Flash Forward number six, I, I think I said something along the lines of, I, I think I'm done talking about comics, I think I don't have anything left to say, because I was just so, I was disgusted, I was, um disappointed um i was to the point where i was no longer mad which is not a good place to be if you want to if you want to stay engaged with anything uh, a form of entertainment a relationship uh, there there has to be some sort of emotion there and uh when i was done reviewing the last issue of that series it was just, it was disappointment and disinterest. I wasn't mad anymore. I, I literally stopped caring. And it was something that I wrote. I said, you know, DC, you won. I stopped caring. You made me stop caring. And uh, at that point, I, for a minute, thought I was done blogging. I thought the blog was over. Uh, you know, 1,500 and some odd days in a row. And that was just going to be it. And I was going to... Uh, you know, put the pencil aside and just uh, move forward. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I probably should have, uh, not just then, but many times in, in the past. But I think we've uh, shifted <laughs> from uh, a content creation hobby to a content creation addiction. Um, I, I am an addict when it comes to this sort of a thing. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not always the greatest uh, greatest thing to have. <laughs> That monkey on your back, you know. But uh, I decided not to quit. And in fact, I figured that night I was going to read, you know, a real Wally West story. I was going to cover a real, you know, I'll go back and I'll read a Messner Loeb's or a uh, Mark Wade or a Jeff Johns and just really, you know, be happy about Wally West again. And uh, I don't remember the actual issue number I chose, but uh, it was a Jeff Johns and uh, Scott Collins issue, I believe, uh, while he was fighting Cicada. I think it was a Cicada issue. And I read it, and I started writing about it. And, boy, it was a, it was a rough, uh, rough attempt, um, because everything I did, I related it to the current day. And... That really doesn't make for an entertaining read. It doesn't make for an entertaining write. It, I, I wasn't enjoying I was hate writing, you know, at that point. Because all I was doing was saying, See, this is the character you had, and this is the character you ruined, and look at what you did to this great character. And that's really not what I want to be. 
uh, that's not the sort of a content creator I want to be. I think there's enough of us out there, enough of those types out there, and I'm, you know, I'm guilty of it as well, where we do compare the good old days with what we have now, and it just became a post for me to do the old cliche yelling at a cloud about how things were so much better back in the long ago. And so I, I canned it. I canned that piece, and instead I think I wrote about like a, a date with Debbie from uh, the early 70s or late 60s, and I had a blast with it because it had nothing to do with superheroes. It had nothing to do with the mainstream DC universe. Um, and I had a lot of fun just being detached from uh, the things that were making me upset and making me question my fandom and making me question all the time that I've been wasting on, on this content. But... uh I tried continuing on, just on the same path. Um, I've run out of my anthology book, so I'm back to reviewing an actual complete issue for every single day for now. And, uh, you know, with the with the current situation, it's hard for me to fill in the holes that I need for to do a proper run of anthology books. So we'll get back to those, hopefully, uh, eventually. Uh, but I uh, tried to keep things light from that point on. I, I was purposely picking... You know, strange books. Uh, I was I, I went through the showcase run of Maniacs. I did some Batman the Animated Series. Just a lot of the sillier stuff. Um, I, I did an issue of Doom Patrol that uh, was kind of an attempt to uh, like blanket myself in comics comfort food. You know, <laughs> it was a uh, just attempts to make myself happy about what I was writing about. And it would always come back to negativity. It was always... I couldn't talk about Superman without complaining about what they're doing nowadays with Superman. Because truth be told, I have not read a single issue of any Superman book since they did the identity reveal. I just can't do it. I can't bring myself to do it. Uh, I think it's that... Uh, you know, I have the <laughs> I have the benefit of ignorance where I can... In my head canon, it never happened. It, and that's, you know, a petulant old fan sort of thing to do. But uh, I figure if I don't see it, it didn't happen yet. So um, maybe I can eventually go to it, maybe when it's over. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, it's just I'm not having fun with DC. And uh, as I got closer to the end of April and realized that I could use alliteration... And, uh, and get away with it by having a gimmick month here where I talk about nothing but Marvel because I haven't I haven't read a lot of these Marvel books in a long, long time. Um, I, I, I've said it here and I've said it uh, all over the place. I, I came into comics through Marvel. Um, even though I haven't really been buying much Marvel, my Marvel collection still dwarves my DC collection. It's just, uh, it's just the folks I came in with and... Uh, it's looking more and more like the folks I'll leave with at the end of the day, but I just wanted to talk about something different, a bit of a fresh start, you know, just uh, maybe, uh, maybe you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder and familiarity breeds contempt and all those uh, axioms, but uh, I just thought it would be, it would benefit me um, and the site to go a different direction. So if you ever wanted to read my thoughts about Marvel Comics, you could do so for at least the next month at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And like I said, who knows, if we get to the end of May and I'm still having a good time, maybe it'll just be a total change in direction forevermore. Or maybe it'll just uh, become, you know, a lot more loosey-goosey at the site where I just talk about, hey, imagine this, anything I want. Uh, <laughs> 
I don't know what it is with me and rules that I make for myself. Um, <laughs> the the DC only rule uh, really hamstrung me, um, and it was never intended to. It was just a, a theme to go with, and it was really all I wanted to talk about when we started this thing. And uh, and actually, that's that kind of gets into the subject we'll be discussing today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Leonard the Duck, who is the lineal Howard the Duck, and this will make sense as we go through it. And in order to discuss this on the blog, which I did uh, not too long ago, this is March 23rd, 2020, um, that I did cover this on the blog. Uh, only thing is, you know, it was a blog post, so not very many people saw it. Uh, so I figure it's probably worth a double dip here on the show. But in order to, like, massage this uh, Howard and slash Leonard the Duck story into fitting, you know, the mandate of Chris's on Infinite Earths, I had to find a way to link it to DC Comics. And I did so through, of all things, a short Nevada story from Vertigo's Vertigo Winter's Edge number 2 in 1999. But that's not where our story begins. Our story's actually going to start with uh, an issue of Spider-Man Team-Up, and then it's going to go into a Savage Dragon comic book. So this is almost like a one-man weird comics history here, in a way. Uh, this is actually a story that I've wanted to cover for a very, very long time. Even though, like I said, I have a sneaking suspicion it's one that will tickle me far more than it'll tickle most people. But, uh... I do hope you stick with me for the ride here, and uh, we will hop right into the books after the horns. Alrighty, before we get into the books here, let's do a little bit of background on Steve and his duck. Now, uh, Howard the Duck first appeared in Fia number 19, that had a December 1973 cover date. Uh, he first appeared unnamed, he was just a duck. Uh, he would eventually get a name in Man-Thing number 1 uh, a month later, January 1974 uh, cover date. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go too deep into Howard's history here, uh, because that's something that uh, I'm sure other people have done uh, much more eloquently than I ever could. But uh, as we move into uh, the next decade here, we move into 1981 or so, uh, we've got uh, Steve on the outs with Marvel, and uh, he takes him to court for ownership of uh, Howard the Duck here. He, he sues them, claiming that they infringed on his equitable copyright. And per the first issue of Amazing Heroes magazine here, he's not really he's not really disputing the fact that Marvel can publish comics featuring Howard. You know, he has a problem with the fact that the company has the right to license the character. Uh, there was, you know, the feature film on its way. Um, they also were licensing out a radio show. Uh, Steve wanted to make sure he got you know his piece of the pie, and I mean that's. That's something worth uh, discussing, I suppose. Uh, he went out and hired uh, Henry Holmes to represent him, and uh, on August 29th, 1980, uh, he filed with the U.S. District Court of Los Angeles for something in excess of a million dollars. I know there's no exact number in this magazine that I'm looking at, but uh, it's you know a decent chunk of change here. And uh, the Comics Times issue number four from around the same time corroborates that story uh, as best it can here. They actually claim that the uh, the suit is in excess of $10 million. So that's the one discrepancy between the two, uh, the two publications, where Amazing Hero says it's in excess of one, but it's not quite 10. Uh, Comics Time says it's 10. Now, in order to pay 
help pay his legal fees, Steve put out a comic book. He uh, wanted to put out a comic book, a special lawsuit benefit edition comic book called Destroyer Duck. Now, this came out via Eclipse Comics, and uh, he wasn't alone. Um, uh, this this issue not only featured the first appearance of Destroyer Duck, but it also featured the first appearance of Gru the Wanderer. And uh, Steve, for the main story here, he was able to get Jack Kirby, the king himself, to handle art chores for free. So he asked him if he would chip in the art for, you know, gratis, and Kirby uh, complied. So Destroyer Duck is a satirical story and uh, has uh, the titular character embroiled in a battle with a conglomerate called God Corp, uh, which is, uh, you know, thinly veiled <laughs> Marvel comics. Um, Steve didn't win the lawsuit, as, you know, you might imagine seeing Howard the Duck show up in, in recent films, and he had his own film, of course. So Steve did not win, and he would go on to do do with Marvel for pretty much the rest of his life. So now how would I, you know, an idiot with a self-imposed rule that I could only write about DC Comics, ever hope to discuss the life and times of Howard the Duck? Uh, well, I had to tie it to something from DC Comics, which uh, was that short Nevada story from the Winter's Edge uh, Vertigo special. And... Uh, so let's talk about Nevada. What is Nevada? What was Nevada? And what does it have to do with Howard the Duck? Well, now, Nevada was a six-issue miniseries written by Steve Gerber for Vertigo Comics. And this ran from May through October 1998. Funny thing is, Nevada was never supposed to be a thing. Uh, Nevada, uh, as a concept, started as a gag going all the way back to an issue of Howard the Duck from 1977. Now, this was issue 16 of Howard the Duck, September 1977, cover date. And this is during, if, you, if you're familiar with the original run of Howard the Duck, uh, there are going to be a few issues that stick out to you. This will probably be one of them, because this is the infamous and uh, far more interesting to discuss than to actually read uh, Deadline Doom issue. This is... <laughs> A very weird issue that is full of, like, odd prose. Uh, the story's called Zen and the Art of Comic Book Writing. And uh, in it, Gerber gives us a really esoteric and sort of out-there issue here. Like I said, it's got the prose, it's got essays, it's got commentary about the comics industry back in the 70s. It's a very weird piece. Um, like I said, it's fun to talk about, but if you actually sit down to read it, it's kind of a slog, and it uh, it's a little too cute. Um, <laughs> now, on one of the pages of Howard number 16, we can see his explanation of the, quote, obligatory comic book fight scene, because, of course, he is, you know, talking about the comics industry and how comics are made. And in this page, it's a two-page spread, we see a showgirl and an ostrich fighting an evil-looking lamp. Now... It was this was never supposed to be anything more than just that one one you know double page splash gag, uh, making fun of some of the tropes of the industry. But we jump ahead into the '90s here, and uh, we bring in Neil Gaiman, uh, you know the Sandman guy. We we all know him. Uh, he sent Steve Gerber a message via CompuServe, and uh, when Gerber passed away in uh, in early 2008, I believe. Um, Neil Gaiman made a blog post uh, about that interaction he had with Gerber. Um, he says that they never met in the flesh, 
But he did send him a fan letter because they were both on CompuServe, and he told him how much he loved the joke in the Deadline Doom issue with the showgirl and the ostrich battling the lamp. And Neil says, quote, I always hoped it would be a real comic. And uh, Steve Gerber wrote back to say that actually it might make a comic at that, and then he went and pitched it to Vertigo. This would become Nevada, and uh, actually uh, Gerber pitched it after a Vertigo take on the Inferior 5. A uh, pitch for that was declined, so he figured why not roll the dice with the, uh, the showgirl and her ostrich, and uh, hey, we got Nevada. So, okay, we have Howard, <laughs> we have Nevada. How does it all come back together here? Um, uh, this is going to be a, a pretty weird trip we're taking here. We're coming through. We're going to start at Marvel. We're going to go through Image. And we're going to wind up at DC slash Vertigo. Um, and uh, as I said in the uh, in the piece on the uh, site, uh, maybe the destination isn't worth the journey <laughs> because the way I was able to massage this into actually fitting you know the mandate of that site... It was it was a stretch and really not worth it, <laughs> but I really just and I was so captivated by the story that I wanted to tell it. You know, no matter how nebulous or you know light the uh, the actual connection to the DC uh, mandate would be, but uh, we're gonna start this one off here in a 1996 issue of Spider-Man Team Up, and in it, Mr. Gerber is gonna pull a fast one with a little help from his friends. Now, Spider-Man Team-Up number 5 had a December 1996 cover date. The story's called Sideshow, and it's, uh, it actually has two stories in it. We're only going to be discussing the Howard the Duck one. There's also a Spider-Man and Gambit Team-Up. has nothing to do with anything here, so we're not going to go into it. Now, Sideshow was written by Steve Gerber with pencils by James Fry, inks by Chris Ivey, colors by Tom Smith, separations by Digital Chameleon, Letters by Bill Oakley, edits Tom Brevoort, edits-in-chief Bob Harris, and of course, this is Marvel Comics. Now, this story opens in New York City on what might appear to be a pretty boring night for a certain web-slinger. See, Spider-Man arrives on the scene of a van that has just been broken into, which is surrounded by folks giving some very odd first-hand accounts of everything that's just gone down. Now, they claim that there were kung fu tortoise-looking guys and a guy in a spacesuit that waddled. Huh. Also on the spot is Peter Parker. Uh, this is during the Clone Saga, so uh, Ben is wearing the webs right now. Uh, now, when I, when I revisited this, I was a little taken aback because I'd forgotten that this was happening at that time. Now, Riley and Parker have themselves a chat, uh, kind of lamenting that, uh, you know, they're, they're both kind of bored, and they discuss the apparent uh, mass hallucination that these bystanders have all seemed to have shared. I mean, tortoise guys, a, a waddling robot, spaceman, what are you going to do? Now, we shift scenes to a nearby apartment where the ringmaster from the Circus of Crime is worriedly closing his window. He thinks to himself the last thing he needs is for the police to come around with any sort of questions. After all, at this point in time, he's trying to stick to the straight and narrow. Anyhow, his uh, worries are interrupted by a knock at his door. And it's the elf with a gun. Now, if you're familiar with the Steve Gerber run on Defenders, you very likely know who this particular little fella is. The elf shoots the ringmaster, and the gunshot rings out through the nearby alley. Peter and Spidey hear it, and they're on the case, with the former rushing into the apartment building to discover the gravely-ish injured ringmaster. 
Uh, Ringo claims that the elf not only shot him, but he also stole something very dangerous from his apartment. Now, our hero assumes that it's the hypno disc from his, uh, you know, ringmaster hat. And uh, so Peter and Ben reconnoiter and uh, wonder if the circus of crime is at it again. Which, I mean, no duh. Now, we head off to Ohio, where Howard the Duck and Beverly are trying to get themselves a table at Donna's restaurant. This is mostly an overlong gag regarding the fact that, uh, you know, Howard is a duck and Howard does not wear pants. It's nothing we haven't seen before. It's not all that clever or charming. Uh, When finally seated, Howard goes on to order a cheeseburger, which really ticks off a rather Rubenesque woman nearby. Because, you know, meat is murder, of course. Uh, And not only that, side stream cholesterol is dangerous to to the environment. Howard responds by, well, maybe suggesting that he should kill him a different sort of a meaty character, creature sort of thing. Uh, Beverly managed to noink Howard out of the restaurant, but fails to remember to take her newspaper with her. You see, she wanted to know what time the movies were showing. She forgets all about the cinema, however, when she spies a sign for the Cirque de Somnambulism. Easy for me to say. Uh, to which she suggests she and Howard should attend. He agrees to go. He's like, yeah, we'll go. Just not tonight. Meanwhile, we head to the Sunspot Hills Fairgrounds, where the Circus of Crime have gathered, with their new leader, the Elf with the Gun. We see here that the Elf doesn't actually steal the Hypno-Disc, but a tiny sitar, which is very strange, but it'll make sense, sorta. (laughs) Now, the rest of the carnies give him a hard time for his failure, and so, he shoots all of them. He kills them all dead. Then... Just to prove how powerful he is, he plucks the bullets back out of the the circus folk and restores them to life. He doesn't shoot the snake lady who sees this all go down, and she suggests that this makes the elf a god. And he he brushes that off. He's like, nah, it's all good. Back at the Daily Bugle, Peter Parker is able to deduce that the Cirque du Sonambulism is a new take on the circus of crime and he finds out that they're putting on a show in Cleveland, Ohio. He's able to nab a ticket from Robbie Robertson and uh, fills Ben in on all the details. Over at the ESU Medical Center, the elf with the gun is paying a visit to the recovering ringmaster. He demands to know where the hypnodisc is, to which Ringo suggests the FBI probably took it and shipped it to Chicago. Now, speaking of Chicago... There's this uh, green-skinned, fin-headed cop who works out there you might have heard of if you're a comic fan. Uh, and we're about to meet him. Now, the elf with the gun makes a call out to the Chicago PD, and he's put on the line with Officer Dr- uh, That green-skinned, fin-headed guy. And uh, check this out. Dr- um, that, that cop, that green, fin-headed cop, has the hypno-disc in question. The elf suggests a trade. The disc for the sitar. The green guy says it's all good, and he'll meet him. He'll meet up with the elf so long as he could bring a duck with him. The elf says he doesn't care if he brings a hundred ducks with him. You know, so long as he gets the hypno disc, he doesn't care. So this is our first little bit where we're you know, we're venturing out of the Marvel universe in a Marvel book here, because this is very clearly Officer Dragon, Savage Dragon from Image Comics. Here uh, we don't see his face naturally, but it is it, it's him. <laughs> It's him 100%. And it'll make more sense as we move along. So, now we pop back in on the Spider-Men, and we see that Peter's on board 
a plane at JFK. Uh, ben is tagging along. He's webbed himself to the plane's undercarriage, as, you know, Spider-Man does. We hop over to Sunspot Hill, where Howard and Beverly are about to head into the circus. Unfortunately, there's a sign on the tent informing them that tonight's show has been canceled. Well, they peek inside anyway, and they see... Duh, the circus of crime. Peter and Ben arrive on the scene right about now, and there's a bit of confusion over how they know or don't know Howard the Duck. Now, you see, Peter has tangled with Howard before, but he's not Spider-Man at the moment. It's really kind of annoying. (laughs) I haven't the foggiest idea how Marvel thought they'd be able to stick this particular landing. There's just too much weird nebulous stuff uh, with the different Spider-Men. I I guess that's probably why they didn't. Uh, Now, anyway, the circus folks bail out of the tent in a truck, and the heroes are left in hot pursuit. They follow the truck to a warehouse, and uh, we can see here that they're not the only ones tailing these geeks. Uh, We're just going to call him Savage Dragon, or just Dragon from now on, because uh, it's just going to make things easier. It's, I mean, it was confusing doing this with like a visual, you know, blog post. Uh, Audio, I'm sure it's even worse. So we're going to call him Dragon. (laughs) Now, the duck he is with here, he, he arrives with a duck as promised, and it is... Destroyer Duck. We don't know that here, but we will know that soon. And we will talk more about that in a bit. Anyway, Dragon busts in demanding the sitar. Spidey busts in demanding the hypnodisc. Howard and Beverly kind of stick to the sidelines, and they try to stay out of the potential line of fire and fists. Now the snake lady sends a snake toward Dragon, Uh, And Spidey accidentally fires a wad of webbing into the guest star's face for good measure. Because uh, we can't see that it's, you know, it's Savage Dragon. We can't see that face. Um, Now, the elf starts firing like mad, only to have his shots returned by Destroyer Duck. Beverly hops in to grab the elf and gets pistol whipped for her troubles. Then, Howard lunges in to find himself face-to-face with a duck. Now, it's, it's almost... As though this scene is uh, purposely being written as uh, being very, very hard to follow. Huh, I wonder if uh, we'll revisit that anytime soon. Anyhow, the ducks meet, the dust settles, and Spidey and the dragon part as pals with their respective bounties. Spidey takes the disc, uh, the dragon takes the sitar. Now, Peter, Beverly, and Howard all jam out of the warehouse, narrowly escaping some pursuing members of the Circus of Crime. We're not sure here where Dragon and Destroyer might, might have gotten off to, though. We, we don't see them exit, so uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Now Spidey gets his bearings and decides to use the Hypno-Disc against the clowns, geeks, and carnies in order to hasten their defeat. Bingo, bango, it's all good. Now the human bullet fellow launches towards Spider-Man, but misses, and winds up flying directly into the KISS exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, After which, the elf with the gun gives us a, you know, sort of like a, what are you going to do? What a revolting development sort of look, you know, at the reader. Now, we wrap up this piece at the Cleveland airport. We got Howard and Beverly. They're wishing Peter Parker a safe trip home. After Peter boards uh, his plane, Howard runs down the list of unanswered questions from this evening's adventure. He's like, well, who or what was the elf? What was up with that sitar? And just who was that big green cop? Well, we wouldn't find out in a Marvel comic who all this stuff, (laughs) all these folks were, or what this was all about. But 
if you follow along with this episode, we are about to get at least some of those answers uh, right now. In the pages of Savage Dragon slash Destroyer Duck number one. Now, this has a November 1996 cover date, written by Steve Gerber, pencils by Chris Marinin, inks and edits by Eric Larson. More on him in a little bit. Letters, Chris Iliopoulos. Colors, Steve Oliff and Oliptopics? Oleotopic? Oleoptic? No. Steve Oliff and and company. Uh, Cover colors by Ruben Rood and IHOC. Cover price, $3.95. And, of course, this one's from Image Comics. Now, here we're coming in hot. (laughs) Our second story opens on the set of a televised interview with someone called Mr. Boyle. It's been a long time since I've read Savage Dragon, so I... (laughs) I'm a little out of practice. Now, he is one of the, quote, super freaks menacing the city. And uh, don't look now, dude has a very familiar-looking trinket on his turban. It looks sort of like a sitar. Anyhow, Boyle is giving this interview to suggest that the freaks don't mean nobody, no harm, no how. Pretty good message. Unfortunately, the interview is cut short, because a freak called Needlenose comes in to jam his... Well, Needle Nose, through the back of an observing officer's skull. Needle Nose then unwraps Boyle's turban, which reveals his giant, puffy, brain-filled, disgusting dome. And then he punctures that with his Needle Nose. And uh, it was very, very gross. Um, Not good. Not good. Now, Boyle's brain pretty much explodes. And since this is a, a televised interview... It sends most of Chicago, the viewing public, into fits of puking disgrostingness. Dragon is uh, quickly on the scene, dodging projectile vomit at every step. He briefly tangles with Needlenose before, well, snapping the Needlenose right off his face. A lot more violent than I was expecting. Uh, <laughs> it's like one of those, you read a few pages and you, you need a shower. Anyway, the dust settles. Dragon finds that this uh, strange little sitar on the ground, um, here it's just referred to as a, quote, electronic device. Uh, He deduces that Boyle was likely murdered for this electronic device, and he asks a fellow officer what it might mean. She figures, hey, it's probably best to ship it off to the FBI. They can analyze it and let us know. We shift scenes to New York, where a van is about to be broken into by a waddling spaceman. Hmm, we heard about him before. Now, he is stopped by, uh, not Kung Fu tortoises, but by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The actual Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, around this time, uh, Image was publishing a very strange and dark volume of, of TMNT, and uh, I guess uh, they're allowed to make guest spots wherever. So, here they are. They're, they're showing up to get this waddling, duck-shaped spaceman away from this van. So, they proceed to beat the hell out of the waddling spacesuit man, but nothing they do is all that effective. I mean, the spaceman here even attempts to kill himself with a jackhammer and isn't even able to make a dent in his own suit. After the skirmish, just like it did in the first story, the spaceman just waddles away. Now, we follow this character, uh, now called Specimen Q, as he walks all the way to New Jersey. We learn that he's been trapped in this suit for a dozen years and his only hope of escape is via a use of a certain key. Hmm. This uh, specimen Q enters an abandoned building and steps on a newspaper which points him toward his next destination, which is Chicago. 
Speaking of Chicago, hey, there's this uh, green-skinned, fin-headed cop who works there. Oh, a little deja vu, huh? We basically get the reverse of that first scene from that first comic here. Uh, We pop into the PD where Dragon gets both a message and a package. Now, the message is to inform him that Ralph from New York called, and the package contains the Hypnodisc. You see, he was expecting the sitar key thing, but Quantico must have mixed up the packages. So, somebody got the sitar. We know who got the sitar from the last story, and now we can see how he got his hands on the hypno-disc. He doesn't get long to lament this fact, because a UFO is reported as flying overhead. Dragon's quickly on the case, and what do you know? The pilot of this UFO is Specimen Q. Dragon continually batters the bot-looking fella about the face before commandeering the rig and crashes it into the path of an oncoming train. So they uh, really don't mess around with the overblown action here, do they? Anywho, uh, Dragon and Q are thrown clear from the crash, and that's where they continue their battle. Finally, Dragon is able to crack through Q's armor, revealing the person inside to be Destroyer Duck, as if there was any question at this point. Now, Dragon slaps the cuffs on the duck and begins reading him his rights. We learn here that Destroyer had actually spent a decade on the police force himself. Dragon's surprised, considering he's never heard of an anthropomorphic duck cop before. Dragon's partner, Alex, arrives, and she's got one of those sitar-looking things. Apparently, there were dozens of them in Specimen Q's UFO. However, none of these have the, the proper electronic components like the other one did. Now, the news arrives on the scene, and Dragon lies to them about the pilot of the UFO. He says that he vanished after the crash, because he wants to, he wants, you know, a little one-on-one time to talk to Destroyer and try to get to the bottom of this. Now, this lie is not lost on the freaks of the underworld. They realize right away that Dragon's hiding something. We meet Dr. Brainerd of, uh, I guess, the freak school. (laughs) They know that Dragon must have captured Specimen Q. And he knows that if Q were to talk, the entire Chicago underworld would be shaken. Now, Gregory Brainard is a character that Gerber had created for the Sylvester Top Cow image books. Uh, He cuts this short because he's got a class to teach, and uh, teach it he's gonna. And his class is full of, you know, freaks. We jump back to the precinct. Dragon gets a phone call, and it's that same phone call we saw him get in the Marvel issue. The trade is uh, posited, the sitar for the disc, Cleveland Warehouse, yada, 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 yada. Destroyer Duck calmly breaks out of his holding cell and tells Dragon he'd like to talk. Dragon complies and even takes the duck out for a burger. It's uh, here that the uninitiated get their quick and dirty intro to Lewis Duke Destroyer Duck. You see, he's from another world, and he came into this one in order to avenge a friend. A friend who'd been exploited and then killed by the evil, evil conglomerate known as God Corp. Uh, we also find out that Dr. Brainerd uh, got into his head, tossed him into that stasis suit, and used him as sort of a guinea pig for the past decade plus. After a short peek into some goings-on with the freaks, we rejoin Dragon and Duke at that warehouse from Cleveland, and it's here we can see a web-slinging superhero and some others showing up at the warehouse from the other side. We're just going to call him Spider-Man. He isn't named, but uh, you know it's Spider-Man, I know it's Spider-Man. We're just going to call him Spider-Man. So, uh, you know, more deja vu. So Dragon and Duke, they bust into the warehouse demanding the sitar. Spidey busts in demanding the disc. 
A snake lady sends a snake toward Dragon. Spidey accidentally fires a wad of web webbing into Dragon's face for good measure. We saw this before. We were already here. The elf, or I think he might be called Nuggo the Gnome here. I'm not sure. Uh, he starts firing like mad, of course, only to have his shots returned by Destroyer Duck. A redhead, maybe Beverly, maybe not, hops in to grab the gnome and gets pistol-whipped for her troubles. Then a duck lunges in and finds himself face-to-face -face with Destroyer Duck. You know, it's almost as though this scene was purposely being written as less hard to follow than the first time we saw it, isn't it? Hmm... Anyhow, the ducks come face-to-face, -face, which, for whatever reason, gives Nuggo the idea to create a whole lot of ducks. Tons of ducks. Before we know it, the entire joint is absolutely crawling with ducks, anthropomorphic and otherwise. Spidey and Dragon each take their bounty, you know, the sitar and the hypno-disc. Then, curiously, Dragon and Duke each sling a person over their shoulders before running out of the place. Remember, we didn't see Dragon and Duke leave the first time, but here we see them, and they have... They're carrying bodies. They're carrying some folks out. Uh, we, you know, this, and this is basically what this whole thing is about here. Uh, as Dragon and Duke each have someone slung over their shoulder, uh, you know, they, they're called a couple of characters with, quote, no friends over there. Uh, and uh, with all the clones shambling around the joint, they claim that no one will ever know the difference anyway. We hop back to Chicago... Duke and the dragon are getting a better look at the sitar. Duke reveals that they were created by Brainerd, and they're called neuroticisms. Or neurotism, neurotisms. Yeah, neurotisms. Uh, they muck about with brain chemistry, and uh, they're likely why Destroyer Duck remained so docile over the past, you know, 12 or so years. Now, over the next several pages, Duke and the dragon fight the freaks. It's uh, just a fight scene, so I guess we can imagine a bunch of weird-looking people punching other weird-looking people for, like, a half-dozen pages. Uh, I mean, this the point of this story was the, the duck scene, the, the, the Howard scene. It wasn't the rest of it. Uh, it all ends with Brainerd making his escape, which really, really ticks off Destroyer Duck. Now, once the dust settles, we head back to the Chicago PD, where a pair of characters are preparing to enter the Witness Protection Program. It is a certain anthropomorphic duck and a human woman. Their feathers and hair, respectively, have both been dyed black. The woman, who is definitely not Beverly, uh, <laughs> takes the name Rhonda Martini. Uh, the duck, who is definitely not Howard, uh, takes the name Leonard. And Dragon informs them that they're going to be relocated to Buffalo, New York. And uh, Leonard is not a fan because of uh, the weather, I guess. Uh, we wrap up with Dr. Brainerd thinking he pulled a fast one, celebrating his freedom and all that jazz. And suddenly, there's a knock at the door, and it's a gnome with a gun. And that is that. So, over the course of two issues that were supposed to come out around at, at ex like exactly the same time, uh, images cover dates are different than Marvel and DC's. Uh, images cover dates are usually like the month of release rather than a couple of months ahead. So this issue actually came out a few months after the Spider-Man team-up issue, which I think made a lot of people forget about it. <laughs> I don't think it had the impact that it could have had if it had come out uh, you know, if not the same day, but maybe the same month as the first story. But, uh, I mean, the whole purpose of this was to take Howard from Marvel. And uh, Gerber and Larson were able to sort of, kind of, do it. 
But uh, before we get into that here, I do want to wrap up our, you know, synopsis portion here by taking a look at that Nevada story from Vertigo Winter's Edge number 2 from 1999. Because this was the only way I was able to, to tell this story without breaking my stupid rule on the blog. Now, in this story, it's New Year's Eve 1998, 8.37 p.m. local time. It is Nevada. And our story begins on the Las Vegas Strip, and it's quite a scene. Our girl, Nevada, who's dressed as Father Time with a long beard and 1998 sash, is there with her ostrich bolero, who's dressed as Baby New Year with a 1999 diaper. They're all part of the parade here. Now, she happens to know that when the clock strikes 9, which would be midnight on the East Coast, somebody is going to blow up the Camelot Hotel. She figures this might just be a way to upstage what goes down in Times Square. Um, Nevada gets into it with a couple of no-goodniks, one of whom appears to be uh, welching on paying a debt. She gets in his face and informs him that he's taking money out of her pocket and also taking food out of Bolero the ostrich's belly and her ostrich ain't a fan of going hungry, see? She tells him that it's up to him to tell Bolero he ain't gonna eat tonight, to which we learn that the big bird has gone missing. Nevada and a shaggy-haired fella are in hot pursuit. I, I don't know much about Nevada outside of this story, so he might be a very important character, but uh, I don't know. Nevada decides to ask some of the parade-goers if they'd seen her ostrich, one of whom is Leonard the Duck. It's one panel. Uh, it's a one-panel appearance of Leonard the Duck, which uh, facilitated my sharing this story on the blog. So, uh, like I said, like half hour ago. Sometimes the journey ain't worth the destination. I still wanted to tell the story, though. But uh, that is the extent of Howard's involvement here, or Leonard's involvement here. But to finish the story, uh, Nevada is able to find someone who's seen her ostrich. She's informed that Bolero was nabbed by a dude in a devil mask and pulled into the Camelot Hotel. If you remember, the Camelot Hotel's about to explode. So she leaps the guardrail, heads into the Camelot to track down her bird. She comes across the devil man who tells her he's going to kill Bolero as revenge for Nevada impaling his brother, which I'm going to assume happened in that miniseries I didn't read. So, what does she do? She runs the geek through with a novelty spear and escapes the Camelot on ostrich back just in the nick of time. The story wraps up. It is a short story. It's just part of an anthology. With Nevada and Bolero meeting back up with that shaggy-haired dude with the promise that the demolition will continue in Nevada 2, which never came out. This is sort of one of those things that uh, almost defies review. Um, usually, if you're familiar with my format, it's... Uh, a blathering <laughs> introduction followed by a synopsis followed by a review and uh if we can even call what i do a review it's more of a discussion i guess uh i don't know if i really have the qualifications or <laughs> or street cred to review but um this is something that really defines all that because it's uh it's not so much a story as it is an agenda uh, but it is a piece of weird comics history that I've really wanted to share for a long time here. Um, and to that effect here, I figure we could probably look at some more news about this or some more reporting on this. Uh, we do have some stuff from uh, Sean Howe's Marvel The Untold Story, which is a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I recommend you grab it any way you can. It's a thick book, but I swear you'll read it in a day. It's it's so good, you won't want to put it down. Um, 
from page 382 of uh, Marvel the Untold Story, we have uh, a piece about this very story. Now, it starts with, uh, for the newly launched Spider-Man team-up comic, Bob Harris told editor Tom Brevoort to bring back Howard the Duck. But when Brevoort and his assistant called potential writers, they all voiced the same concern. I'd love to read that, but I'd hate to be the one to write it. And they were told to call Steve Gerber. And so they braced themselves and reached out to Gerber. After thinking over for a few days, Gerber called back and explained that he was at work on a comic that teamed his Destroyer Duck character with the Savage Dragon, which is a creation of Image co-founder Eric Larson. He says, I want to do an unofficial crossover where we'll do these two stories, the one in that book and the one in your Marvel book, and we'll set them in the same location, but the characters won't really run into each other. They'll just kind of run back and forth across the same landscape. But if you have the two books together, you can see the larger tapestry. Brevoort was intrigued, and he approved the idea pretty much on the condition that nothing in the Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck story, uh, which he would have no editorial control over, was going to get him in any sort of trouble. Okay. Now, also worth noting that Gerber found out that uh, Bob Harris wanted to use Howard not just for this story, but in other stories, and so Steve lawyered up. <laughs> he, did the, uh, he was not, uh, not happy about endorsing a, uh, you know, a revival of Howard the Duck here. Um, he got over it, evidently, because he did the story. He did the issue here, and, uh, and I'll just read how uh, Sean Howe explains it in the book here. Uh, Spider-Man Team-Up number 5 featured not only the returns of Howard the Duck and Beverly Switzer, Switzler, ugh, easy for me to say, but also the long-absent, off-the-wall Gerber creations like the Kidney Lady and the Elf with the Gun. The crossover, as it were, was only a matter of a few panels that overlap with Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck, in which Howard and Beverly find themselves in a crowded scrum of duck clones. Over in that other non-Marvel comic, Gerber pulled a switcheroo. They haven't got any friends over there. They're coming with us, shouted Destroyer Duck as he grabbed Howard and Beverly from the melee. Anyhow, one of the clones ran out of that way. They'll never know the difference. In effect, Howard and Beverly had been rescued from the Marvel Universe and replaced by imposters. In the remainder of the Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck comic, Gerber's beloved creations were put into a witness protection program. They'd never know me back on the old plantation, says Howard, now sporting eyeglasses and green-dyed feathers. It looked black in the comic. I guess they are greenish black. Uh, he and Beverly Switzler now take the names Leonard and Rhoda, Mon Rhoda Martini and head for Buffalo, New York, far from Marvel's clutches. Howe continues, Months later, Gerber was sending out emails about the Howard the Duck death page that he posted on AOL. That page contains my final word on the subject, he wrote, until Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck comes out. Uh, as I've been telling people, there's more than one way to skin a duck. Dragon Duck illustrates method number two. Brevoort was furious at Gerber's deceit, and he was certain that he'd lose his job for allowing it to happen. When confronted, Gerber explained that Brevoort had simply been in the way of the gunfire. The editor, who said he'd always considered Gerber a, quote, bastion of moral integrity and moral, moral, moral fiber, the little guy fighting the man, would vow never to work with Gerber again. Brevoort says, uh, he decided that me and my life and my family were perfectly acceptable collateral damage to the larger point that he wanted to make. Now, Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck was met with audience indifference and low pre-sales. 
Gerber, heartbroken, offered to fax the 20-page plot to retailers, but when the comic finally shipped, months late, nobody noticed. Now let's talk about Tom Brevoort for a bit here. Uh, you, you almost, I mean, you, you got a feel for him here. You got a feel for him. He was, he was doing a solid for a creator that he respected and looked up to, and uh, that trust was just shattered. Um, I mean, this is such a silly and and petulant little stunt that Gerber pulled here. Uh, I mean, Brevoort was scared he was going to lose his job. He was, wasn't going to be able to provide for his family. And let's look at Marvel in 1996. They were, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy or in bankruptcy. Uh, Brevoort certainly didn't have the stroke he had then as he does now. So he was still lower dude on the totem pole. So you can't fault him for being nervous about this. So this was just a real jerk thing for Gerber to do, uh, to, to put him on the hook for this sort of thing. But, I mean, Gerber wasn't alone, okay? <laughs> now... Steve wasn't the, you know, he, Steve might not have even been the mastermind of this plan here because there was another text piece in Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck Number 1 written by Eric Larson called The Never-Ending Battle and in it, he kind of alludes to the uh, fact that maybe he sowed the seeds of this caper and uh, we'll read a little bit from that here. It's kind of a long one, so I apologize for my uh, bumbling and stumbling through this ahead of time. <laughs> Larson begins with, There's a reason that creator-owned and controlled characters are gaining ground on the mainstream bureaucracy-controlled ones. Creators know their characters inside and out. They nurture and develop them, molding them out of nothing. Creators have a stake in their creations. Their creations reflect themselves. The bottom line is this. Creators care about their creations, and fans know this. In the past, and currently, the big two have made half-assed promises to gullible creators who were tricked into believing that they'd have control of their creations. They didn't take into account that the people who made the promises were as replaceable as they are, or that the corporation that controlled them ultimately controlled the company and the fate of their creations. I was reminded of this the other day when Electra Number 1 came out. There was a new Electra series out at the time. He continues, that was, a, that was Frank Miller's character, damn it. For a brief moment in time, the illusion was maintained to both Reader and Frank that Frank had some bit of control over the character and how she was used. Frank killed her, and it was awesome. And when it became obvious that Frank had said his piece and wasn't coming back, those bastards dug up her lifeless corpse and screwed it all up. Who cares if Frank was given creative control of Electra? He wasn't coming back, so screw him. The corporation needs more cash. Pump out the product. Who cares if Stan was given creative control of the Silver Surfer? He wasn't coming back, so screw him. The corporation needs more cash. Pump out the product. Who cares if Steve was given creative control of Howard the Duck? Well, I care, dammit. Steve cares. But I've got to ask you guys, if the Marvel machine was so willing to screw Stan, what made you th any of you think that the Marvel machine would keep its promise to you? The thing is, without the machine, Spider-Man would have ceased 30 years ago, and the Fantastic Four a few years later. Without the machine, the X-Men as they are now wouldn't exist. Superman, Batman, the list goes on. And there is an attraction to working on some of these characters that is positively palpable. But at the same time, there are certain creations that shouldn't be touched by anybody but their creators. Howard the Duck hasn't been Howard in anyone but Steve Gerber's hands. Same goes for Stan and the Surfer, Frank and Electra. There's gotta be a happy medium somewhere. There's gotta be. I happen to think it's here, at Image. 
Image doesn't own anything. Todd does. Mark does. Jim Lee and Jim Valentino and I do. Image owns nothing. If Sam gets the Max onto MTV, Image doesn't get a dime. And if anybody wants to stop writing or drawing their books and get someone else to do it, that decision is theirs to make and theirs alone. The creators own their creations and decide the fate of their creations. If you're doing work for hire for one of the boys, you may be taking your chances, but at least you'll know who's screwing you over. It's not perfect. There have been problems. People have hired writers who have turned around and created evil twins of their characters, and that's led to some sticky situations. I've avoided that by doing most of everything myself. In cases where there is collaboration, I try to let everyone know beforehand what the situation is. Steve Garber came to me with a dilemma. He'd begun the process of reintroducing Destroyer Duck in the pages of Codename Strike Force, but didn't get to finish it up. I could be talked into anything. Give me a good sob story or offer to involve me in some twisted revenge scheme, and I'm there. Steve and I talked. I was there. We talked about possible collaborators and plots, and at some point Marvel called Steve and asked him about writing a Spider-Man team-up with Howard the Duck. He was inclined not to. I talked him into it. I thought it would be cool to do some sort of unofficial crossover where the characters all bumped into each other in a dark room. Steve said he'd write the book if they agreed to do the unofficial crossover. They did. We settled on having my old studio mate and Wildstar Wild alumni Chris Marinin pencil the tale, and I opted to ink it myself, having long wanted to work with Chris. It was later that Steve found out that the machine's plans for his creation, the Howard appearances, uh, the Howard stories, the Howard soppy Christmas specials, and he was distraught. And so the sob story became a revenge scheme. Screw them. Steve, let's grab the sucker and make a run for the border. And for once, the creation has been taken back by the creator. The machine is diminished as another blow is struck for creative rights. I don't know if they'll even notice or care. But I care, damn it. Steve cares, and that's what matters. Now, this issue also includes a uh, behind-the-scenes story from Steve Gerber about uh, this issue of Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck called Foul Play. It's another long one, which I will bumble and stumble through, <laughs> if, you'll, uh, if, you'll, uh, if you'll bear with me. Now, Steve starts with, This story is long and aggravating. If you're not the type who revels in the mundane, petty crap that goes on behind the scenes in the creation of comic books, then stop here. This will be your only warning, and, and I, I, will, uh, <laughs> I will echo that warning. Um, the story behind Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck actually begins in 1978. For the previous six years, I'd been a writer and editor for Marvel Comics. Among the characters I created during that time was Howard the Duck. In 78, I parted company with Marvel as a result of a bitter dispute over who owned Howard. For brevity's sake, let's just say that the, dif that the difference of opinion ultimately became the topic of litigation. Lawsuits are expensive. At one point, it looked like I was going to have to pack up my briefs and chuck the whole thing, until I came up with the idea of publishing a comic book to help finance the suit. That comic book was Destroyer Duck Number 1. The legendary Jack Kirby, who'd had his own problems with Marvel over the years, was among those who donated their talents to the book. Together, Jack and I created Duke Destroyer Duck. Keep that in mind, Destroyer Duck came into being specifically because another Duck creation had been taken out of my hands by Marvel Comics and placed in the care of writers who, frankly, had absolutely no idea what to do with the character. 
You won't fully appreciate the irony of this little tale or the astonishing stupidity of the person telling it if you forget this fact. Anyway, the lawsuit was ultimately settled at a court. Marvel got custody of the duck, but made certain concessions in return. The precise terms of the settlement were confidential at Marvel's insistence, so I cannot discuss them here. After the settlement, Marvel approached me about reviving Howard the Duck. I enthusiastically set about writing the script for a new first issue of the series. The script came back to me from Marvel with large chunks deleted and or changed by the company's then-editor-in-chief. That'd be Jim Shooter. In light of the mauling the script had suffered, I didn't want it published. I pulled it, and that was the end of Howard the Duck Revival. Some years later, I brought Howard back in a multi-part story in She-Hulk, but Marvel did nothing to promote the guest appearance, and it went mostly unnoticed by the fans. Flash forward several more years to 1995 and the 14th issue of a comic book called Codename Strike Force, published by Image Comics. In that issue, an enigmatic figure known only as Specimen Q emerges from a cryogenic freeze in the sub-sub-basement of Gregory Brainerd's New Jersey factory. When the story was plotted, the plan was for Specimen Q to lead Strike Force into an encounter with Destroyer Duck. At that last moment, though, Mark Silvestri, whose Top Cow Productions published Strike Force, changed his mind and decided that, well, on second thought, maybe a talking duck wasn't really in keeping with the tone of the book. I was crushed and frankly tempted to walk off the book, even though I didn't want to. I enjoyed writing the Strike Force characters and valued my working relationship with Mark and with Top Cow editor David Wall, which had overall been, my mo- been among my most pleasant experiences in comics. I didn't feel it was worth dy- dynamiting that relationship over this one incident, but at that moment I couldn't see an alternative. Enter a close friend and advisor, here and after Mr. Close Friend and Advisor Esquire, with a suggestion that made it possible to tell the story more or less as I originally intended, although absent Destroyer Duck. I took Mr. Close Friend and Advisor Esquire's suggestion. David Wall and I made the necessary adjustments to the story and resumed the ongoing mad dash to meet our shipping dates. David also made a crucial phone call. As every reader of The Savage Dragon has surely noticed, Eric Larson has a penchant for embracing bizarre characters and concepts. In what other series would you expect to encounter a supervillain with the head of a chicken, or a group like the Body Function? Where else would you expect to witness an actual fistfight between God and the Devil? David thought Eric might be inclined to publish a dragon-duck team-up. Eric said yes, and we all vowed to put uh, put out that duck book someday soon. Time passed. Codename Strike Force was cancelled. The comic book market went into a tailspin from which it still hasn't recovered. Eric and I were still discussing the Dragon Duck team-up, and it seemed to both of us that the time for it might be right. With the industry in a state of stagnation, with almost every new spandex title crashing and burning as soon as it hit the stands, the return of Destroyer Duck might provide a welcome change from the ordinary superhero fare. So, naturally, that's when Marvel called. I should have been expecting it. My life and career have obviously never been uncomplicated. But no, I got caught off guard. The editor of Spider-Man Team-Up asked if I'd be interested in writing a Spider-Man Howard the Duck story. The real answer was no. I was much more enthusiastic about getting Destroyer Duck back into print, and I knew exactly what would happen if I wrote a Howard story at the same time. 
the Marvel Marvel publicity machine would combine with the blindly nostalgic tendencies of many comic book readers to draw all the attention away from what promised to be the more interesting of the two stories. Mr. Close Friend and Advisor Esquire, though, was urging me to write the Howard book because the character was an asset for me at Marvel. More about that rationale in a moment. Various other friends and fans were of the same opinion. Even my mother wanted me to write the character again. They all thought it was my big chance to return to my great creation. Personally, I thought it was a gigantic opportunity to voluntarily step in dog do, but I figured, okay, I'll give Eric a call and see what he thinks. After all, he was going to be publishing what might be considered the rival book. To my surprise, Eric agreed with everyone else and came up with the outrageous idea that I couldn't resist, that we orchestrate some sort of crypto-crossover between the two stories, a scene that would happen in both books and bring all the characters together in some oblique manner. I couldn't resist, but I was also deeply relieved. I didn't think that there was a snow cone's chance in Tierra del Fuego that Marvel would ever agree to the proposition. Once they turned it down, I could walk away from Spider-Man team-up story and still feel as though I'd acted responsibly career-wise and all that. Marvel agreed to the proposition. I plotted the Spider-Man team-up story with Howard and, to be honest, enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to. Instead of thumbing my nose at the nostalgia buffs, I decided to give them every damn thing they'd been asking for. Not only Howard and Beverly, but also the Kidney Lady, and even a homicidal elf from my old Defender stories. A 70s extravaganza. Plip! That's the sound of dog droppings dropping. While working on the plot, I learned that Marvel had commissioned another Howard the Duck story by another writer in a book called Generation X, scheduled for release the month before the Spider-Man book. Plip, plip. I was not happy about this, but I'd made the commitment to write the story and I intended to stick with it. Blip, blip, blip. After that plot had been finished, I learned that Marvel had scheduled two more Howard stories also by other writers. Blip, 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 squish. I'd stepped in it again. A simple, room for, a simple rule for identifying assets. If it's located in someone else's dog run, it isn't one. In other words, no character that anyone creates from Marvel Comics can, by definition, be an asset to the person who creates it, because Marvel owns it and can do anything with it they want. It's only an asset to Marvel. After everything I'd gone through with Howard, I thought I'd reason I had a reasonably firm grasp on that concept. I guess not. I was steamed. My concentration was shot to hell. Sufficiently so, I was having difficulty difficulty writing the plot for Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck. Eric was expecting the story, and I owed him an explanation for what was taking so long. I gave him a call and told him essentially the story I've just told you. Eric chuckled, said, Hey guy, I know what I'd do in a situation like this. Eric's suggestion was, in the current vernacular, very empowering. You see, the crossover scene in Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck plays out a little differently than the version in Spider-Man Team-Up number 5. Howard the Duck quotes Howard the Duck in quotes still belongs to Marvel, but you and I now know that the duck is only an empty trademark, a clone whose soul deserted him forever at the corner of floss and regret. The real duck and his girlfriend now reside in the image universe, where they were last sighted in Chicago boarding an Amtrak for Buffalo. Jack Kirby died in 1994. If there are comic book stories after death, I hope he gets to seek a copy of Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck. 
I think he'd appreciate the sheer audacity of what we've done, and I know it would keep him laughing for the better part of eternity. Now, a few personal notes from Gerber. First, I want to thank Eric Larson for this opportunity to introduce Destroyer Duck to the comic book audience of the 90s, and of course, for hatching the kidnapping ploy that rescued Leonard and Rhonda from the universe of banality. Speaking of Rhonda, I'd like to thank Mary Screens, my longtime friend and former co-writer on Omega the Unknown, for suggesting her name. Twenty years ago, it was Mary who suggested the name Beverly, so it seemed only fitting that she should name Howard's girlfriend, Leonard's girlfriend, too. Uh, Leonard, by the way, is named after my late father. I also want to express my gratitude for Chris Marinin for turning in an exceptional penciling job on this issue, and to Kevin McCarthy, who provided invaluable assistance with the dialogue for the Spidey Howard story in Spider-Man Team-Up number 5. After this, he, uh, you know, he gives you an address. If you want to learn more about Leonard the Duck, you can write to him at Image Comics. But, uh... One more thing before we get to the <laughs> wrap-up here, because the story isn't quite over yet. You'd think after this sort of a situation here, this sort of, like, big F you to Marvel Comics that, you know, the bridge was burnt. It wasn't. Uh, Steve Garber would eventually return to Marvel Comics and to Howard the Duck. Uh, this was the Marvel Max limited series, you know. Marvel's mature line, where you try to fit in the F-word just as much as you can. You know, as many F-words as possible per balloon. I think that was the, uh, I think that was the mission statement for Marvel Max. And uh, Howard's Mini was certainly no exception to that rule. Now, we're only going to bring it up because in issue number four of Howard the Duck, the miniseries from June 2002 cover date, we meet a certain showgirl and her pet ostrich. Uh, now, this isn't Nevada. It's actually Utah, but I, I think that's probably about as circular as this whole thing's going to get. We go from Howard to Nevada, back to Howard, to Savage Dragon, to Howard, to Nevada. It's, it's, it's a very weird uh, situation here. It's just a wild story. And, uh, you know, as a, as a story, it was what it was. Um, it was, in a way, brilliant. <laughs> it was, uh, in a way, kind of, kind of a jerk move. Um, after reading... You know these stories and the uh, the written pieces, you know the prose pieces, the uh, the the editorials from both Larson and uh, Gerber. It feels like this like big rah rah fu to Marvel and, and corporate comics here, and I can't help but thinking it probably went up, probably would have meant a ton more if Larson and Gerber didn't both return to Marvel like shortly after this. Uh, it just feels like. I don't know. I mean, it feels like, you know, they really, really, you know, laid it out on the line there. They drew the line in the sand here and then went back to work for Marvel. I, I don't know. Uh, it kind of takes the wind out of the uh, out of the old sails for the for the rebels, doesn't it? But uh, now that's a story <laughs> that we took a long time to tell here. Uh, this is a fun little uh, piece of weird comics history here that... Uh, I don't know that we'll ever see anything like this again, especially with just how corporate comics have become. Uh, you know, uh, DC's always been, or hasn't always been, but for the better part of a long time now, has been, you know, Warner Brothers, Time Warner thing. Uh, Marvel, for the past decade plus, has been part of Disney. So I think, I think things like this just won't happen <laughs> anymore. So that's what makes this as petulant as it, as it is and as a sort of... Sophomoric as it is, it's special, and um, 
you feel for uh, for character for creators who who really put their heart and soul into a character and uh, it's one of those debates that I think comics fans have and will continue to have for a long long time about uh, you know creator owned versus uh, you know for uh, for higher work um, it feels like every few years there's a new lawsuit coming up or a new lawsuit revisited where we learn a little bit more about the rights and about what was signed away and how they were signed away and 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 it's it's a very muddy it's a very divisive um, discussion but I think it's a uh, it's one worth having. Um, I'm certainly not advocating to you know release every character to their creator or or to take all of the creator's characters away. It, it, I, I don't know what the uh, what the middle ground is here because. The, the selfish Marvel and DC fanboy in me would really like to see new characters, you know? Um, we don't see that anymore. We don't see non-derivative new characters anymore. We might see the 8th Ms. Marvel or the 15th Spider-Man or the 37th, you know, Robin, but we don't get new characters anymore, and I think that's a shame. As a as a fan of shared universe comics, that's a shame, but I I, I understand why we don't. Because there really isn't anything in place to protect the creators and all the time and effort and heart that they put into their characters. Um, I think, in a way, it's easy to write Gerber off as just kind of missing the plot. You know, when you sign away, when you work for hire, um, you work for hire. You know, what you're making is for a company, a corporation. Uh, you know, we saw something similar with uh, Marv Wolfman when the Blade movies came out. He wanted his piece, and I don't know what he got. I don't know if they settled. I, I didn't follow that case uh, as much uh, as as I've looked into the the Gerber one here. But I fear I figure there's got to be a happy medium somewhere where we can get new characters, but the creators will be compensated for those new characters and in some form or fashion outside of the four higher page rate or whatever. Um, I think that I think that comics are in a I mean that we're in an unprecedented sort of time here with uh, all the films and all the licensing and the and the television. It's it's strange times, and uh, I think there needs to be protection for for everyone involved, so we can keep these universes fresh, um, and also keep the creators um, happy about uh, about their and proud of what they're contributing to these universes. It's uh, it's been a long time since we've seen new characters, and uh, that's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate, and this sort of a story here with uh, Leonard the Duck is uh, is kind of an indictment on that because you know Gerber did Gerber did this thing here Gerber and Larson they did this uh, the heist here and uh, you'd think it would have proved a point, um, but unfortunately it really didn't. It really was just treated as though it was uh, a prank rather than a statement. I mean, I think there's a reason why we don't really hear about this too much. Not too many people talk about this. Uh, and that might just be because it's not as interesting as I'm trying to make it seem. <laughs> but at the same time, it just might be that it's just a buried piece of history that uh, didn't amount to a whole heck of a lot, unfortunately. I feel like, if anything, you know, we take we take the, the pettiness and the, the, the fact that Tom Brevoort was thrown in the middle of this, you know, with... By no fault of his own, um, 
this should have been something to start up to open up discussions. This should have been something where this should have been like a flag, you know, like a flag on the play of uh, normal comics here, and uh, it really wasn't. Um, it makes for a hopefully interesting episode of a podcast, but I, I don't know what else it might do. But I, I, I quite enjoy this story. It's um, it's one that I've been dying to tell, um, both on on the site and here. But uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope it. Uh, I hope it's. I hope it was new. I hope it was something new to you. I hope this is uh, new information that, uh, and, and hopefully food for thought. You know, just something to think about about uh, you know creator owned work and uh, corporate owned work and maybe not so much who owns what, but. Uh, You'll get past that into the actual personal feelings and the emotions behind uh, uh, maybe not technical ownership, but uh, emotional ownership. Because I think that's a that's that's an important piece. I think you have to have ownership in order to uh, emotional ownership and investment in order to put out your best work. You have to care about what you do, um, and it's very clear here that. Uh, that Steve Gerber cares very much or cared very much for the Howard the Duck character, just like uh, Eric Larson cares so much about uh, the Savage Dragon. That's his character. You you wouldn't see anybody else doing it, and that's the way it should be. That's that's Larson's character, and, and he should uh, he should always have 100% control over it. Alrighty, I think that's all I've got for you today. I'll let you get back to real life, uh, as it is. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear your comments about uh, Leonard the Duck, Howard the Duck, Destroyer, any any duck. You want to talk about any duck, I'm here to, <laughs> to talk about any duck. Um, any duck, any uh, creator uh, we can talk about. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to hear what people think about this this weird story. Best place to find me is probably at Ace Comics on Twitter. You can also reach me at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, other programs on this channel uh, Moratory Mondays every Monday. Um, and from Claremont to Claremont, an X Men podcast, hopefully the first Saturday of every month. Uh, the latest episode just dropped this weekend. It is 12 hours long. So uh, <laughs> hopefully you have some free time. Hopefully you have some long drives ahead of you. You can catch up on all that fun stuff. We're having a great time putting it out, and we hope that uh, we hope that a you can tell that we're having a good time, and b that you're having a good time too. I launched a show right before I got struck with Mike Fright called Blogging dot 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 Into the Void, which I'm hoping to pick up again real soon. I have a couple of interviews lined up with uh, some great content creators to discuss their process, their. Uh, their achievements, their frustrations, all the stuff that goes into creating content for this internet. Uh, if you're interested in that sort of a thing, definitely reach out at the same places I just listed, and uh, we'll we'll get to talking, and we'll put out. Uh, I want to you know put out some sort of a content creation brain trust here, get all the good ideas out, and uh, maybe give us the opportunity to vent some of our frustrations. Uh, I want to thank you so so much for hanging out. It really means the world to me, and uh, I will talk to you again real soon.